0: Welcome to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Caraview. Every week, a guest and I will be discussing an album that we both fucking love. We're going to find out how the record or band entered our lives. We're going to do some track-by-track observations and, of course, any other thoughts that come our way. Warning, these are conversations held by adults, and sometimes bad words will appear unedited. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about The Real Thing, which is the third studio album by Faith No More. It was released on June 20th, 1989 by Slash and Reprise Records. It was produced by Matt Wallace and this was the first major release by the band to feature a vocalist, Mike Patton from Mr. Bungle. Uh, The album peaked at number 11 on Billboard in October of 1990. It is certified platinum in the U.S., and it was nominated for a Grammy both in 1989 and in 1991. On the other mic today is fellow former college radio metal director, current marketing technology and digital strategy consultant at Betagirl and all-around badass, Michelle Robbins. Michelle, please tell the people a little bit more about you.
1: Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I was on the programming staff in college radio and was the metal music director at KUCI. Right after college, I landed in the music industry, first as a metal college radio rep for Disney's commercial record label, and then ultimately leading national alternative radio promotion for them. Then I skedaddled out of that industry and into technology in the mid to late 90s, where I've been ever since. I'm currently a marketing technology and digital strategy consultant at the agency I founded in the late '90s. Um, having recently left a digital media company I worked at since it was founded 12 years ago, that's kind of me. Later this year, I'm going to be I'm going to be pursuing a master's in data science program.
0: Oh, very nice. I didn't know about that. Cool. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. We appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to talk to me about uh, about this record. It's going to be hopefully a lot of fun here. So the first part we talk about is how did this album enter my life. And for me, my senior year of high school, which was eighty nine ninety, Epic had been released. And it was something that people were talking about because it was on the heavier side. And I was a metalhead in high school. People would were asking me if I'd heard the song, and I hadn't. I didn't listen to the radio very much at the time and still just hadn't quite caught it. And I don't quite remember if I heard epic or saw the video first before getting a copy of the album Uh, a friend of mine had it and he made a tape for me i think probably from another cassette (laughs) and he wanted to keep it all on one side i don't remember what he put on side two it may have been Candlemass. i don't quite remember but he cut yeah so he cut out from out of nowhere and edge of the world but i didn't know that until later so for me the album started with epic and finished with war pigs uh, when i first heard it Yeah. And so that started what would be like a two-year obsession with this record. Eventually, I did get it on my my own cassettes, and then I bought it on CD, and now I have it on vinyl. That's how Faith No More entered my life, and I'm a better person for it now. How about you?
1: So Faith No More actually happened a bit earlier for me when I was a senior in high school, because I think I am uh, got to beat by a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> my my sister had some friends who had moved to San Francisco, had lived up in the Bay Area, and we went up there to visit them um, over the summer. I think it was summer of my senior year. And um, one of our friends introduced me to, you know, played me played me a cassette tape <laughs> of this band called Faith No More. And it was We Care A Lot. So I was familiar with them from hearing we care a lot on really crappy cassette quality but essentially they they were telling me about the band they're like oh yeah this is awesome band they play parties and clubs nearby and i just thought we care a lot was a hilarious and fantastic song so i knew about the band then and then by the time the the real thing got released i was already in college radio so when the album arrived at the station it landed in my bin and i immediately loved it i mean listened to the the entire record and um i remember you know at that time california California, kind of Northern California and Southern California was a bastion mm-hmm. of great crossover bands um, that, you know, were blending really heavy music with funk and just kind of being a little bit more experimental, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone, Limbo Maniacs, uh, Primus, who were, you know, Limbo's were also from the Bay Area. I just loved the the combination of heavy music and funk. And so this record just, I loved it from the gate
0: think that was really what people were attracted to about this just not that it was heavy but it was heavy but different so different just different things going on that uh, and the easy way to say it was oh there's a little bit of rap metal when that didn't really exist yet or right. funk metal which i think is really just so reductive of what they actually do i mean it's natural that that's what people are going to you know especially when you have to write reviews or try to get people interested that's going to be that's the easiest two-word description sure. But I think ultimately is a little bit of a disservice to the band, unfortunately. But that happens to probably just about every band. They they got to fit
1: into a box, right? Got to. Of course, yeah. Put them into (laughs) oh this box.
0: (laughs) If it's we'll we'll let them wear it. That's good. Yeah, because I do remember catching We Care a Lot, but a little bit later. So it was after I turned eighteen. We go to this dance club or whatever, and that was one of the songs. So it was like that's where the place was playing like Nine Inch Nails.
1: Right. Right.
0: And We Care A Lot was on their rotation. So I I knew of that right about at the same time, but I was really all about the real thing at this point. Before we get into the track by track analysis, one of the things I'm wanting to explore a little bit just from listening to all these different records is how the albums open. And I've narrowed it down to personally, I came up with four different types of opener and somebody on Facebook posted another one, which I'll I'll mention. But the first one I have is what I call the call to action. Uh, And this is the type of opener that's meant to announce the album's arrival or like it was maybe written to be played at the opening of a show. So it's just like big. It's bombastic. It's just here we are. It can also be known, unfortunately, as the only good song on the album. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The second one I have is the teaser. Uh, and this typically doesn't sound like the rest of the album and it's a little bit short. So it's usually less than a minute and it's sort of a little bit of an, an experimental or flighty or fancy or just something that doesn't quite fit with the rest of the album. So I call that one the teaser. Then there's the setup, which doesn't sound radically different from what the rest of the album is going to give you, but it's really about setting up the second song, which is going to punch you in the face. And then the last one i call the blueprint, which gives you an overview of what to expect from the album. It's so like the themes, the sounds, etc. Sometimes it's just song one, but other times it's just a slightly pumped up version of what you're about to hear. And then a friend mentioned uh, one that he likes to call The Mulligan, and that's when the first song is the only song that you skip on the album. <laughs> uh, so that being said, I'm going to say for me, the first track on this album from out of nowhere is a call to action opener. Just with the with the riff and the drive that this song has, I think this is, this is how you announce your presence. And what about you? Where would you
1: put this one? Oh gosh, I... I honestly, I feel like it's. Um, I feel like it's set up, but maybe not not for the second song, but for the kind of showcasing the breadth of the band's sound mm-hmm. that you're going to hear throughout the rest of the record. And okay. I think that you know it's also called from from out of nowhere. So I thought it was pretty smart for them to make that the first track and you know the first title of the first song because I think it also kind of indicates how you're going to hear something you've not he- heard before
0: sure Uh, and i also think this is probably one of with obviously a couple exceptions yet one of the heavier songs on the album obviously not quite as heavy as uh, track four but yeah so i think this is a little bit heavier than the rest of the record and i think but it's just it's just got that great driving riff it just goes this is when pulling the thing on the old toy car and you put it on the ground and it's in the other room as i had mentioned initially i did not know that this song existed It was not on. It was not on the album that That's I had.
1: Not a good friend. A good friend I know, doesn't do I, that to you. <laughs> no. Like,
0: how would you leave this song? There's other things that you could have cut off, but man, it was tough. And the worst thing is, so it's freshman year. Uh, I'm in the dorms. I have the radio on. And I hear this song because it had been released as a single. It just right. didn't do very well. And so this was on the 98 rock. They would play just cool random stuff on occasion that wasn't necessarily in heavy rotation elsewhere. And so I hear this song and I don't know what it is. I can I can clearly tell it's Faith No More, but I don't know this. from And, and I know this is the only album Mike Patton sang. on it. like, do they already have a new album coming out? Or <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on. And so this is, you know, pre-internet days. Right, right. So and not only do I not know, I have no way of finding out at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> in 1990 in a dorm room in Tampa, Florida. It's just not going to happen. So I got like no sleep that night because I was like, what am I listening to? What's going on? What is this all about? <laughs> and then finding out it's on the album I have and just wasn't on. So that really led me to you know do that thing where I actually purchased my own copy of the actual <laughs> album. Yeah. And so, and I still, I still love that song. And even though it's, you know, a million years later, it still feels a little bit like a new song for me because I didn't have it initially. <laughs> oh, it's,
1: it is absolutely one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, I just think, like you said, it's it just sets it up with such a, I mean, that melody the, so is so powerful throughout the entire song. And I think it, I think it does a really good job of also showcasing... Uh, Mike Patton's vocal potential, which is a bit squished Mm -hmm. on this record overall, because he's so nasally, you know, I blame the production. Um, But, but it really does give you a sense of his range and his, you know, what his capability will be
0: certainly and and i don't think you get as nearly as much of that on this record because i remember thinking what a great voice he had right. and then after that just saying oh I, I had no idea what a great voice he had <laughs> yeah. at that point uh so this really teases us but he said i think coming down to the production and i think the fact that what, you know most of this album was written and recorded and he just came in and put lyrics on top of most of the songs is what happened uh, i think that also probably had a little bit to do with uh with that probably just the way he had to approach the song right, right. And that leads us into track two, their biggest hit, I believe, at least in America, the song that they're still mostly known for, which is Epic. What did you think about this one,
1: Michelle? Uh, well, I mean, it's really easy to love it because it's, you know, it's so catchy. And it on this record, it's the closest, it's the closest song to We Care A Lot. So if you were familiar with the band and loved We Care A Lot, this kind of delivers on your expectation, I think. Um, yep. And it also was such a great, you know, like I mentioned before, rock and funk crossover bands there were so many so many bands at least in in la at the time doing this kind of music that it was fun to have one of them actually hit it really big chili peppers obviously at this point had also finally gotten you know beyond college radio attention but they were the only ones and so i just thought this was fantastic for the music and for the genre to show that you know bands don't have to be one thing or the other they can do all Mm. kinds of different things and i mean it's catchy as hell right (laughs) so
0: oh definitely Uh,
1: But, but interestingly, I don't think it's the best song on the record. Like for me, not, not my favorite song on the record. And I, and I don't know how much that is because it's been played so much and it got played so Mm -hmm. much, you know, it took over MTV, it, you know, took over in in Southern California. Anyway, you couldn't run from it. Everybody was playing it. And I just don't think it was the best song. So I don't know if I just kind of got sick of it or, or what, but, uh, but it's still a great song and I I love listening to it even now. And it actually, it still gets airplay here. Oh yeah. Yeah. I
0: don't know if I've ever heard this, because for in Europe, uh, Easy is much, much bigger. So if you're going to really? hear a Faith No More song, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> the song most people know, Seriously, is Easy. Uh, so so there, there are people, I have heard this, and I have, a, a, I found out, let's say, distant relative, I have a cousin here in Poland, he loves Faith No More, and we actually went and saw them a couple of years ago. So he obviously, he knows this one. So you will hear Epic at certain places, but
1: uh, oh, I'm telling you,
0: I yeah, seven times out of ten, if you hear a "Faith No More" song, it's uh, it's it's
1: easy. No, I never hear "Easy" on the radio here, ever, never. <laughs> it's yeah, it's
0: it's strange because this is their only hit. Right. So I seen I've seen "Faith No More" put into the one-hit wonder category. Now they have had others break the top one hundred, but nothing's been in the top forty. Right. Because of that, this is the song that a lot of people. This is what they think "Faith No More" sounds like. Right but it's really just one piece of the puzzle. This is not the blueprint of their sound.
1: No, not at all. And I don't even think it's emblematic of their sound. I think it's emblematic yeah. of the sound that got them popularity and that was popular at the time. Sure. Yeah, I don't think it is actually, you know, if you were to, if somebody were to buy the entire Faith No More library based on this song, they'd be very disappointed. <laughs> i think certainly
0: and well and i think that's kind of what happens sometimes that this is what people go in expecting and and this is something they can do but this is not what they do do right if that makes any sense and i think it's still i think it's still a great song it is a little bit dated as you say towards this is kind of what was bubbling under the the under the mainstream at least for a bit at the time so obviously it wouldn't be what became new metal about a decade later but this, this was that this is an influence on the people who were doing that for sure for better or for worse right. uh, but i still think it's a good song but again i don't think it's the best song on the album either but i do think it was the the right choice for a single certainly oh for sure uh, yeah because i i think my because my favorite song of the album which we'll obviously get to later I, I don't think could ever be a single so i don't but this is one of the first albums where i realized that if you buy an album for a single and if that is not in your top five favorite songs you know you've made a great choice for a record so we're going to go on now to track three uh falling to pieces the third single and i'm really kind of surprised this didn't do better i always remember this as being the pop song on the album without listening to it when i just see falling to pieces I'm like oh yeah that was the poppy one <laughs> i kind of forgot like you know the guitar and it still has some teeth yeah. so it's still i mean it rocks but uh, i'm just i'm surprised this wasn't the big hit that epic was a little bit more of the novelty even though that's selling it short and then i just thought this is the one that's going to come in and boom this is going to be and it just didn't do nearly as well this song has some great lines in it i love droplets of yes and no and an ocean of maybe right yeah how do you feel about this one?
1: uh i love this song <laughs> this is it's this is actually <laughs> one of my favorite songs on the record And um, because I just think it has a really killer hook, you know, like you, I'm surprised it wasn't the most popular from this. I mean, I'm not surprised because the video was so influential for Epic, right? Um, Yeah. I think you can't disentangle the song from the video for that one. So I'm not surprised that this one wasn't as big as that. But from a sound perspective, I think this is much catchier. Um, I think it could appeal to more people. Surprisingly, I don't know if it's because, again, it deviates from the expectation that Epic set or why. I I really don't understand why it wasn't more popular, but uh, it's one of my favorites, and I think the baseline is incredible, especially, you know, I think it really, dem- I think that was the instrument that was brought most forward besides the vocals in this song. Mm-hmm. Obviously the keyboards throughout maintain that, that hook, but it's got really, really incredible bass. And I feel like between the bass lines and a lot of their songs and Mike Patton singing on this record, that's where the whole Red Hot Chili Peppers thing came from. And I don't know if that was as big across the country as it was here in LA, but in LA they were very, it became this mini war (laughs) almost like oh they're just a red hot chili peppers ripoff band it's like no they're completely different but the songs you hear on the radio kind of let people think that so there were lots of comparisons but i think the bass here is as strong and as incredible as anything fleas put on vinyl
0: oh certainly and i think while they both have a similar approach to bass with let's say like the slap bass type thing right. i think they're very different bass players and i oh, think yeah. uh where i think flea sometimes carries the melody a little bit more than uh, than billy gould necessarily does i always feel like lee kind of approaches it more like a, the, with the rhythm and the melody sure. and billy comes at it more like i'm secretly playing lead guitar <laughs> <laughs> and i always think it's his, and that's maybe not the sound i feel like that's his attitude with the yeah. bass and I like that approach because he he'll come he comes right at you with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But
0: because, because but because they're both playing slap bass, oh, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really not. And I get the comparisons, especially with that. But bass. that's
1: about it. Sure, yeah. it's
0: it's really reductive. And I know it was a thing. And I know that Anthony Kiedis got Mr. Bungle kicked off of a off of a festival lineup at one point because of it. And there was a thing I remember hearing about it mainly just because I was such a huge fan of Faith No More at this
1: point. Yeah.
0: So uh, I was never, really never a big Chili Peppers fan, a little bit. But I, I pulled out Mother's Milk the other day, and it doesn't hold up very well for me. Yeah,
1: I still like Fight Like a Brave quite a bit. And Mother's Milk is kind of the last record they, wrote, they, they put out that I liked. So my, uh, I was a very, very big Chili Peppers fan early on, and then very much not a fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, and I know a few people like that. Track four, we have Surprise, You're Dead. <laughs> is kind of just boilerplate metal. I think in the universe where Faith No More decides to just be a straight-up metal band, this is their signature (laughs) song. But they're not, but they still have it because of Jim Martin, who is just this fantastic guitar player who I think was really the soul of this band. This may be as good a time as any to get into a conversation about Jim Martin, who I think was just... A fantastic player, and, and, you know, you and I did a little bit of a prep call for this, but uh, to talk about how every member of the band really comes from a different school of music, and somehow they made it all work. Right. And, And I've always really felt the reason why they made it work is because everything was filtered through Jim Martin's guitar. Right. And Jim Martin really wasn't Flash. He wasn't the guy that, he didn't want to be Eddie Van Halen. He didn't want everybody looking at me. You know, he didn't want to be Yngwie Malmsteen. I think he wanted to service the song. I think he wanted these songs to rock. He just wanted to go on tour and spread hate. You know, I think that's all he really wanted to do. (laughs) And and i think that helps that gives the music just a backbone where you can have this this crazy bass and you can have the drum the way that they are and you can have this keyboard player and it just all if it all filters through jim martin's guitar it works now this is again this is just straight up metal right <laughs> you know there's no dashes to be put in front of or after this this is a heavy metal song right and I like it, but I'm also glad it's only about two minutes Yeah, long.
1: I always felt like this was a parody metal song when this first spun up on the record. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, this is funny because they're parodying mm-hmm. metal here. Um, because I agree, it's it's a very straight up metal song. But I also thought, it, I felt like it was a parody because I thought it was so uninteresting being a big metal fan. Um, mm-hmm. I love a lot of metal. And so when I compare this up against my favorite metal, it's like pass, hard pass. So this is one that I... This is skippable. I'd have dropped this from the record if I was recording it onto a cassette for you and didn't have room for the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And
0: I could see why at the time, because I was getting it from a fellow metalhead. So I think he purposely kept ah, these because okay, yeah, And right. I think a little bit of the hook to, to get in because the rest of the album is fairly different. And now my question to you, is this song a prequel to The Morning After? So we're going to move on now to track five, Zombie Eaters. Where are you with this song? I love
1: Zombie Eaters. I feel like it's the creepiest lullaby ever written. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, it starts as a lullaby and then it becomes a nightmare and then it goes back to ending as a lullaby. And I just love, I love the structure. I love the sound. I love the lyrics. I love the topic they're taking on here. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. I love it.
0: I flat out love this song. This spent (laughs) quite a bit of time as my favorite song on the album, but it is not, but it is top two. Uh, And for a long time, this was my favorite. And this is because, you know, I get the album for Epic, and I really liked Epic. And then briefly, I just, I loved their version of War Pigs. And then once I really, once this album started to make sense to me, Zombie Eaters was it. And that's when I know, when I know I, I truly love an album, when my favorite song keeps shifting. Yeah. And this was the third favorite song, but it's like, all right, yeah, this is good. And the thing is, I'm not usually a fan of songs that take like two minutes to kick in. Okay, the first time you're like, fine. And then after that, you get kind of annoyed. No, I love it. I love that two minute intro. Yeah.
1: But I mean, it shifts with purpose, right? So, yes, so many bands will do things like this. They'll attempt to make, you know, a song that is, you know, three or four different songs in one and it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. Because it just doesn't, you know, the arrangement just doesn't work. But this is, I feel right? Like this is perfect.
0: I'd agree, and so it's because you have the build and then that breakdown. And this yeah. is again where with the bass yeah. that just that bass at the two minute mark. It's like. <laughs> that blows my brain every time even now i listen to that the last two days like i have this like everybody be quiet i'm I'm listening to <laughs> <laughs> two minutes and the zombie eaters so you need to give me like 10 seconds and then you can be back to whatever you're doing the lyrics are great yeah. uh even even though mike patton briefly indulges his infantile side even though literally you know kind of pun intended because the whole song is about a baby right, right but other than that the lyrics are fantastic and i think really tell if not a story they tell you something yeah It's one of those, it's not so obvious that the first time you hear it, oh, okay, I know what the song is about.
1: Right. You have to really listen. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: just pouring over the lyrics. And one of the things I used to do in my classroom is I would play songs. I would pick three songs that I would have the students and I would of course give them lyrics and I would have students tell me what they think the song is about. And it's really tough to find songs to do that with Mm -hmm. because either the story is so obvious that, you know, like, okay, so, so buddy, what do you think this song's about? I think it's about a boy and his name is Sue and he's unhappy about it. You know, it's like, okay, (laughs) there's no real interpretation or it's just a bunch of words that rhyme and it's relying on the music to carry the emotional weight. So when you just look at the words on the paper, they don't, they don't really add up to very much. Right. Now, I never used this particular song, even though because it was just a little too long. I thought about it, but just trying to play a song for six minutes in the classroom is <laughs> not easy. Yeah. It's one that I, I had considered because I think that you there are probably different ways you could look at this song, even though I, I do think that this is just a, about a child's reaction to his mother. I, I don't think there's much else you can say about that. It's not easy to get to that point, but once you figure it out, you're like, ah,
1: <laughs> I'm the
0: smartest <laughs> man alive.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, completely agree with everything you just said. I think this song is fantastic. I think it's, um, and it holds up. It really holds up. You know, it doesn't sound like some of the other songs on the record, kind of sound of the time, you know, of the sound of the time. This mm-hmm. one you can you could take this out and put it on put it on another album today and say, Check out this new band and it would it just holds up perfectly.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think this is if not the best, like the second best song on this record, but I don't see this as being a single. Oh, you no. know, it's six minutes it's six minutes long and this song is heads and tails above epic, but you're not gonna listen to that on the radio. No. Uh, which leads us into the title track, The Real Thing. And this is one of my all-time favorite songs, period. Just full stop. When you asked me for like my 10 favorite songs of all time, at one point, this was song two, I think, for me. I just love this song. Every part of the song works for me. And I'm again, I'm not normally crazy about really long songs because a lot of times I feel like they just, they're repetitive for no reason. Mm-hmm. This song could be 24 hours long and I would still listen to it. <laughs> I think this is some of Mike Patton's best work as a lyricist. And I believe that this song is about an orgasm.
1: That's what I get
0: from, I just, I love this song. And Michelle, what about you?
1: I love it. Oh God, I love it. I love it. And see, I think this is the most metal song on the record because I wrote off the other one as a parody. Um, Okay. (laughs) And and, or as a representative of metal, I don't enjoy. Whereas this song to me is very metal. It's so it's it's so heavy. It's so great. And, you know, the vocals, the drums, the guitars really drive it. Um, Yeah. You don't hear as much uh, of the keyboards as you do. You know, the keyboards are really forward in so many of their other songs. But this Mm -hmm. one, it is all drums and bass and uh, his his Voice and I agree with you. The lyrics are incredible. It's almost like, you know, prog metal. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan of prog metal, but this I absolutely love and I agree with you. Probably, I don't think it's my favorite song on the record. I still think that is um, probably falling to pieces, but I actually, from out of nowhere, it's really hard to pick a favorite, to be honest. <laughs> when I start going through, I'm like, well, on balance, there's this one, and ah, uh, but absolutely one of my favorites on the record
0: yeah i just love this and, and again with the guitar the guitar is just so great it has that swirling effect that you'd see like in mother love bone and a couple others it's just there's a yeah. few that just the approach to the guitar playing and they said you know it, even the, the keyboards are obviously there they're not front and center like they are in the other song and just like when it would do the slow down and then that the, the bass is drawn out thing yeah. it just Oh, man. So and just again, some of my favorite lyrics on this one, like, uh, you know, the split second of divinity, you drink up the sky. I don't know what that means, but it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm gonna have to move on. So we don't get too bogged down just talking about this one. Right. So that moves us on now to Underwater Love. Where are you here? You know, I
1: think it's um, easy to listen to and bop along to, but you could be doing, you could be having a conversation on top of it. I don't feel like it's something that I listen to, listen to, because I, I just don't think it's as interesting as some of the other songs. So I don't yeah. skip it, but it's not one that I'm like, I'm going to listen to that today. You know, that doesn't doesn't make it onto a loop for me.
0: Yeah, definitely. This, this is one that doesn't make it onto a mixtape or anything. Yeah. For me, it's really hard to follow back to back all timers. So you go from zombie eaters to the real thing, two of just my all time favorite songs, and then this. You know, you're it, it's hard to follow that up, yeah. and I almost wonder if I would like this song better if that and the morning after were flipped on the record.
1: Uh, that's a good point.
0: It's never been high on my list. It's a decent tune. It's got some fun reads. You know, the liquid seeps into your lungs, but your eyes look so serene. I just, I don't know why that's a fun song to sing to. And it's maybe the most poppy song on the record. For sure. uh, Despite the lyrical content, but just like musically, again, this I think could have been on the radio. And I'm almost surprised it wasn't. You could have an underwater love in 1989 (laughs) or
1: 1990. Honestly, I just think it's a bit, it's too forgettable. Um, yeah, especially yeah. up against the other tracks on the record. So when you have to pick singles, you want to you want to pick the one that you think has the, the most legs. And I just don't think this has legs.
0: I would agree with that. I just For me, it was just like the poppiness of it. I could see yeah. this being like the, the fourth single. It's like, let's say. <laughs> You know, the way I think I would have done it is you is you release Falling to Pieces. Falling to Pieces is huge. Then you go into Epic and that's got that killer hook to it. Then you bring out From Out of Nowhere because it just rocks. And then you finish it off. You get that fourth Last Gap single with Underwater Love. You sell 7 million records. Everybody retires. <laughs> so that's... That's how I would have done that. So again, I could take it or leave it. If it wasn't on the album, I wouldn't miss it. If this would have been been cut out, I would not have missed it. <laughs> right.
1: It still makes it onto my digital transfer. But like I said, I, I don't pay attention to it when it's on.
0: Sure. And then uh, track eight, The Morning After, which I maintain could be the aftermath of Surprise, You're Dead. And it's funny because I, I included this song in a mix that I made for my sister with songs that could be about vampires without necessarily being about vampires because my sister really likes old school universal monsters kind of thing and so she always said a thing about vampires and there's a song by dream city film club Uh, they had a song called because you wanted it and it's clearly about drugs and without ever saying it it really sounds like somebody who was turned into a vampire who realized they didn't actually want to be a vampire and so then I'm like, I wonder if there's other songs I could make just because I wouldn't make this mix for anybody but for my sister. Right, and right. so I did. And I was really proud of it that I ended up finding, you know, 75 minutes worth of songs. And this was one of
1: them. Interesting. I think this song does a really good job of showcasing the entire band's talent. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that yeah. it's very balanced across everybody. Um, nothing is too forward. Nothing is um, eliminated. So it's balanced and good, but it's it's not a favorite of mine.
0: Yeah, same here. And this is one I think if, again, if The Morning After came right after the real thing, because I think that doesn't have that big difference that shifts in tone like Underwater Love does. I think I like both of these songs better if they're flipped, because then we we go from the two great but a little more serious songs and then a little bit of a poppy nothing and then back down. And I think really showcases how much Roddy Bottom does add to this band with just the keyboards and that that really has that post rock kind of keys that really drive that song I think ultimately like again not a great song but a but a good yeah
1: that's interesting I think that I'll I'm I'm gonna go into my iTunes and flip those two and listen to them (laughs) and and see how that impacts me because there's definitely a psychology to your reaction to hearing something based on what you've heard before yeah that's that's fascinating to consider and easy to do so I'm going to do it and see if it changes my mind I mean I like the song just not a favorite
0: Sure. And I'm going to actually make one more suggestion, two songs from now, something else you can do and tell me this isn't a, a much, much better record. This moves us on to Woodpecker from Mars, which is an instrumental named after a Woody Woodpecker cartoon, I found out today. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this I one? I really
1: love a good jam, right? Mm-hmm. So something like, you know, the, uh, the at the end of Can't You Hear Me Knocking by the Stones, that's a fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic jam, and I can listen to that all day long. This I cannot. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those indulgent instrumentals, you know, uh-huh. where it's just sort of they wanted to do this song, so they made us listen to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I am generally not a huge fan of instrumentals. Yeah, but this one I, I like. I do find myself skipping it on occasion, just because yep. you know I don't like instrumentals very often. But what I, I have a memory of this one where uh, I <laughs> I wrote a poem called "The Woodpecker from Mars" and I read it with this song playing in the background as my outgoing message on the answering machine at my first apartment. So that, <laughs> back back when people used to do stupid stuff with their answering machines, yeah. this was my this was my stupid thing. That's Fantastic. And it confused the hell out of my roommate's parents, because at no point do I say what number you've called, our name,
1: uh, leave a message, okay. nothing.
0: It's just right. me reading a poem called The Woodpecker from <laughs> Mars, which I don't remember anything about, but just that I wrote that with this playing in the background. And I hear my roommate's dad um, uh, is did i dial the right number one of those (laughs) what what becker what is what's going on so it was it was fantastic i enjoyed that very much
1: what are your kids (laughs) learning in college these (laughs) days (laughs) exactly
0: it's track 10 war pigs the black sabbath cover what do we think here Well,
1: i'm a huge sabbath fan yeah and my feeling on covers overall is that if you're not improving it don't do it Uh And um, it's so hard for me to listen to his vocals, right? Because it's impossible to not want to hear Sabbath doing it and to not compare. I remember working with an artist. She was a female singer-songwriter at the record label. And she told me that she only ever covers male artists. And that's so that she won't be compared to the female artists that did the original. And I thought that was really, really smart, right? Sure. Because you can't help but compare, and so I cannot be objective about this song because I'm comparing it to, you know, Sabbath, and I just think it's a it's too straight ahead a cover, but with annoying nasal vocals.
0: For me, it's well done, but it's straightforward. It this right. adds nothing. It, it was a hook for me at the very beginning because I was just getting into Black Sabbath, and and this is a point where I was listening to the metal that was current at the time, but I was also listening to other things that were influencing the bands I was listening to at the time so I was listening to those first couple of Aerosmith records and I was listening to some old Kiss and I was listening to Black Sabbath along with you know whatever was current at the time Right, uh, and, I, and I didn't fully get into Black Sabbath until just a little bit later so this was one of those that I thought okay this is decent and then later it's like oh and then I would skip it you know almost yeah. every time <laughs> yeah. I I skipping this all the time even within that first couple years when i was just really into this record because i really wish that they would have replaced this song with cowboy song
1: Oh, okay yeah
0: which was recorded at the same time it ended up getting included on that live at brixton academy yeah
1: i, I mean i just don't think this song is necessary on the record at all <laughs> it's no, one it, of those that it's filler definitely this is another one that it didn't make the digital transfer
0: yeah, I can. I can see why. I like covers because sometimes you learn interesting stuff, or you can see how flexible a song can be. This is War Pigs with Mike Patton. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, so
0: there's just not a whole lot so there.
1: Slightly less good version of War Pigs. I'll pass. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And then the final track on the original CD release. So this was not included on the vinyl. So uh, if you bought the record, you may not have heard this particular song. And now there's a deluxe version and there's more after this. But the last song, let's say on the the cassette and on the CD, Edge of the World, I think such a great way to end the record. I love the piano in it. I love the creepy lounge singer persona. (laughs) And much like Epic, I think this is a part of what they can do. It's Mm -hmm. not... It's not what they do, but it's what they can do. And it also means that they're in some universe. Faith No More is known as that lounge band because of this. Oh. As opposed to that funk metal band because of that. Right,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, lounge rock is not something most rock bands would attempt. Oh, and actually man. do well with, right? And yeah, sell. Yeah. And and I mean, not just well, but terrific. And I love this song. And I think it just really underscores, you know, the breadth of the band's talents, you know, their willingness to experiment and, and to kind of buck genre and stereotype. I really think that's what Faith No More was. They You couldn't fit them into a box and they were here to tell you, don't put us into a box, right? Because we're only going to disappoint you <laughs> or make you amazed at all of the things we can do. Definitely. And like you said, you know, I love the piano it and the bass really underpin the melodrama of the vocals, which are yeah. fantastic and just this side of creepy. <laughs> and I'm a sucker for a horn section. So that they drop horns in at the very end, I just think yeah. is fantastic and the perfect ending.
0: I would agree. Yeah, it was a fun way to go out. And you said it, I think this is where you see a lot of Mike Patton's vocal talent. Yep.
1: That's stretching
0: or going crazy or anything but just that it doesn't sound like he's being cheeky about it he's in this particular personality and he's singing it for all he's Mm -hmm. worth i think just a great ending to a great record
1: yeah absolutely agree
0: my final thoughts on this is you know this for a long time was my go-to response if somebody asked me what's your favorite album I would say The Real Thing by Faith No More. I went with that for a long time. And I think, you know, and while at times it is a bit dated, as we said, especially with Epic, I think it really still holds up. And I don't think that's just nostalgia talking because I've managed to listen to this album off and on for a long time. So it's not like I listened to it like crazy from 89 to 91 and then just sort of left it behind. This is one I would go back to. And when I hear it, I don't just hear it through Derek in 1990s. Ears kind of thing. I still think this is a, a good record, and like you said, I think uh, Zombie Eaters could be put on an album today, and, and nobody would know the difference. Well,
1: I, uh, I mean, I agree that it holds up really, really well, but it's impossible for me to hear it and not be thrust back into that time, <laughs> um, just because it was so. It really was so pivotal for me. I think you know, it was a time where metal was kind of starting to fade and, and change, right, mm-hmm. and kind yep. of leave the leave the popular mainstream, which the bad metal needed to. So that was perfectly fine and then grunge had yet to take over right so you had this little window of time and they were so brilliant and there were other bands like them in that in that tiny window of time that just put out some really fantastic music that never saw the light of day I think it really demonstrated that bands didn't have to fit nicely into a single genre I felt like it was kind of a sign of things opening up and allowing more diverse sound from heavy music I think I was wrong, (laughs) but at the time I was like, this is fantastic and let's start mixing all the sounds, you know? And so it really led me to investigate a lot of music that I really otherwise wouldn't have exposed myself to, wouldn't have thought possible, you know? And a lot of that was just, you know, time and place, right? Being at a a college radio station where you get literally every album that gets released. So you have that opportunity to hear all these things that you're not going to hear off a commercial radio. Certainly. But for me, this is emblematic of that. It's emblematic of like opening up and diversifying sound.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I would say at this point, when I first got this record, I was just, I was still basically just a heavy metal guy. I didn't listen to anything that wasn't metal at this point or very, very little that wasn't at least hard rock. But I was starting to kind of chafe at that. And I realized there was a lot out there, but, and I didn't know where to go, where to look because I didn't like what was on the radio. Right. For me, there's uh, Jane's Addictions, Nothing Shocking, This Album, and Ministries, The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Yeah. I listened to all three of those records around the same time, within a few months of each other. And it really changed the way I was looking at music because all three of those records in places were heavy, but none of them were exactly metal. Right. They had their moments. And then a little bit later, my freshman year, buying Soundgarden's Loud Love. Right. So for me, I always feel like a debt of gratitude to this record among, you know, with those three for helping me start to look at different things. Yeah,
1: I would add Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine to that too.
0: All right, I think we're gonna wrap up uh, our discussion of the real thing here. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Do appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again. soon. Thanks for
1: having me. This was a ton of fun.
0: That was I Fucking Love This Record. Music at the top and the bottom by The Ashes of Grissom. Please visit our website at www.lovethisrecord.com where you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. On Facebook and Pinterest, we are Love This Record. On Instagram and Twitter, we are Love This Record 1. A special thanks to original patron Mark Evers for getting this project back on track. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.